Hello and welcome to my podcast, Side Character Questions. I'm your host, Mason, and with me today, we're actually interviewing the creator of the Side Character Quest podcast. Hello, this is me, Ty. I'm the creator of the Side Character Quest podcast. Ty, I'm so glad you could join us today. Um, I'm really excited to finally get a chance to talk to you here on the show. Uh, We've got a lot of questions sent in by listeners, uh, a couple of questions that I've submitted myself as a fan of the show. Uh, And I just want to say again, I'm really, really thankful that you're here and I'm really excited to finally get to talk to you. I am really glad to be here. It's really nice to do something uh, to drop into the side character quest feed during the holidays because we're taking a little bit of a break and uh, we want to make sure that, you know, people have something to listen to. And this show is going to be all about sort of trivia, behind the scenes, uh, show and format, lore stuff. And uh, one of those things we can start right out. People don't know this. When Ty isn't manning the feed, I am. I just don't tend to release anything. I just kind of hang out and keep an eye on things, you know. That three-hour episode that was just fart sounds, that was that was all, all Mason. That one's private on Pinecast. You can't. Nobody, if nobody you could subscribe, download it. If you, if you uh, are a, a paying subscriber, um, the only way to actually make those payments, though, uh, you have to do the ARG that will give you the uh, the private Venmo handle for a uh, the president of France. And actually, the part that really the part that really weeds a lot of people out is right at the end. You have to buy an NFT, so Oof. there's like a lot of moral sacrifice you have to make yeah. in order to get it. It's yeah. really not worth it. You also have to send us a picture of you punching a dog. Yeah. Yeah. That, honestly, I wasn't going to do that part, but then I saw how many people buy NFTs, and I was like, man, that's not going to weed out the worst. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's just... You want to get, get right into the actual questions? Yeah. And, uh, right. you know, at worst, you can just fade up somewhere in the middle of that. <laughs> so, uh, we have... Quite an extensive list of questions, actually. We spent some time preparing a Google Sheet. I say we. You spent a lot of time preparing it. I just kept changing the font sizes to match. We've got, (laughs) I think, 30 questions on the list here, and we're hopefully going to get through all of them. We're going to do a lightning round near the end where we can hit a lot of them quickly because some of them are pretty quick to answer. Um, I think we should start out with the one that's at the top of the list, which was asked by Ty, (laughs) and... uh, it is ranked as A plus high priority. Yes. Uh, Ty typed that in. So <laughs> if you could uh, take your hand off of your back and stop padding for a moment. It just says release schedule, question mark. So what is the release schedule for SCQ? I used to think that it was uh, Sunday nights and then I thought it was Thursday nights and now I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so the traditionally, traditionally, the release schedule for SCQ was every other Sunday. Uh, eventually that became just fortnightly, um, which was to say, you know, like roughly every two weeks. And and I've basically kept that up. And the problem is that at my day job, because this is, hey, uh, surprise, surprise, this is not a thing that I do professionally. It's kind of a side quest. Yeah. yeah. For my day job, I have a busy season that goes from basically like late July to early October. And then that rolls directly into like holiday family stuff. Mm. So there's basically four or five months out of the year where it's really freaking hard for me to find time to do 
a podcast. So I've been wanting to experiment with a new sort of release schedule. And by saying this here, I'm actually going to be locking myself into trying it. Okay. Um, because I, I've been wanting to try it for like over a year and I've, I've never, I've never taken the time because I've always been afraid it would just not work with my weird brain. Um, I'm, I'm, there's been so much lead up. I'm really curious as to what it could be. It's just a release <laughs> schedule. What, what, what's the plan? So rather than record, you know, record the episodes whenever and then edit them in a horrible fury leading up to, you know, every two week deadline. Instead, I want to try doing the vast majority of the editing for every arc before I release the first episode of that arc. Okay. So I might be misunderstanding you, but I don't know what you mean because I thought that's what you were doing already because you record months in advance uh, and you edit and then you release the previous arc you edited while recording the next one, but still editing that arc. Is this different? Yes. Okay. So let's say let's, let's take Talbotton's arc as an example. When the last episode of Deirdre's arc came out, I had two weeks before the first episode of Talbotton's arc came out. I had done no editing for that first episode. Oh, so I did all of the editing for the first episode in that two weeks. And then I did all of the editing for the second episode in the next two weeks. And I did all of the editing for the third episode in the next two weeks. You know what? I I do. This is bringing back memories. I had thought that you were already uh, edited ahead and you were still uh, doing this. So your goal here is to essentially pick up some slack ahead of yourself. Yes. So basically what I would do instead, um, what I would have done instead is last episode of Deirdre comes out. Then I'm on pause. I'm on like a season break kind of thing. I do all of the vocal track editing, not necessarily all of the sound design, but I do all of the vocal track editing for every episode of Tal Botton's arc before I release the first episode of Tal. So you're introducing some blank space between the arcs. Yes. And then once the first episode of Tal's arc comes out, I release on a weekly schedule instead of a every two week schedule. How much of a break do you think you'll need between arcs? I don't know. That's that's why I wanted to. That's why I've been afraid to experiment with this, because I I don't want to be in a situation where or I didn't want to be in a situation where like fans of the show, listeners of the show were like, yo, are you is the show dead? Like, are you ever going to come back? But I feel at this point that I'm I am confident enough in my uh, in my desire to make the show and in, in my desire to get the episodes out there and to do a good job with them that I'm not worried about will these episodes come out? You know, I know that I'm that I'm going to do it. And it's more about trying to make sure that they come out without causing me intense anxiety every two weeks. Yeah, because that's that's uh, unsustainable and it's kind of remarkable. You've managed to keep that up for almost four years at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so the next the next few arcs that I have planned, the, I, ha- I have the next arc completely recorded. It's, uh, I think, five episodes long and I have plans for the one after that. Um, I'm, I'm going to be recording that starting next week. Uh, and that one, I think, will be two to three episodes long. So I, I'm going to experiment with this. I think for at least three arcs. Okay. Just to see if it works. 
And, and you're going to be starting that coming out of this holiday break? Yes, coming out of the holiday break, I will be starting on that that thing. So there might be a little bit of a gap before the next arc comes out, but it, it is one that listeners, you do not, the thing that is coming next, you don't know that you want this. You have, you will be so fucking excited when it, when it drops. I am, it is very good and I am very excited about it and I've been excited about it for li- like literally years and it is finally happening and I'm so excited. Um, I am so curious. Can you give any <laughs> hints as to who the player character, uh, who the player is? I, I don't think I can. I, I don't think I can. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you get one of the McElroys to come on and play dead Sir Roderick? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's move on because I, I'm worried about, uh, uh. I'm worried about either spoiling something or getting your hopes up because I think that you'll guess the wrong thing. I think you'll be super excited about what it ends up being, but I think it's also very possible that you'll predict something else that, and then you'll be disappointed that it's not that. Oh, okay. I don't think I would be disappointed, but I completely agree with, uh, we shouldn't get too caught up in this. I am very excited about this next arc, despite not knowing anything and me off air trying to wheedle any information I can out of you. But to uh, to put a button on the release schedule question, do you have a rough idea when we can expect the first episode of that next arc to drop, even if it's just a month? I I do not have an estimate for you. I don't know if I'm going to edit all of the audio or if I'm going to edit all of the audio and add the sound design before I release the first episode. Okay. And if I do if I do everything including the sound design, then it'll take me longer to get to that, you know, to build up what you need to. To build up what I need. So I'm not I'm not 100% sure yet. Okay. Uh, That's fine. I, if I'm if just it, eager. Okay. That's all. Yeah, I I can't imagine I'm going to get myself in trouble. If yeah, I don't, give, don't get yourself like, in trouble. I, I have, don't, don't I worry have a about prediction. It. I have a prediction for when it will come out, but I think I would get myself in trouble and I'd give myself anxiety if yeah. I, if I Just, said that and didn't meet it. That would defeat the entire purpose. Yeah. Let's uh, let's move on to talking about the the show itself, the setting inside of the show. Let's move on to sure. some of these lore questions because I'm pretty excited about some of them. Uh, so the first lore question I want to ask is one that I have a personal theory about that I think I've picked up correctly, but then again, I've been wrong at picking up several things. Uh, this one was asked by Derek. Uh, Derek uh, asks of the How Not to DM podcast. I did an oh, interview it's that with him. Derek. Yeah, I did an interview with him a while back. Yeah. Oh no way! I didn't know it was that Derek. Yeah. 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 Derek asks from the How Not to DM podcast, is there a big bad evil guy or a BBEG, a double BEG? If so, have we encountered them? Who are they? I don't know if you're going to answer the who are they because you're cagey about a lot of stuff. But is there a big bad evil guy? Yes. Have we encountered them? I don't think I can answer that. You don't think you can answer that? Yeah. What do you mean? Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> Tell me why you can't answer that. Um, because I think that I don't think I, I 
don't think I can explain why. Um, basically, it, it. I can't think of a satisfying answer that is not spoilery. Okay. But there is a big bad evil guy. That's a revelation in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, big bad evil guy being just a gender neutral story cliche. Yes, which I believe originated uh, with uh, the Buffy the Vampire series. I didn't know that. I actually haven't yeah. seen Buffy. Uh, I, and also, Derek did just put, is there a BBEG? So it could be, <laughs> is there a, a Buffy backdrop engraving guy? Yeah. And like some guy who engraves backdrops for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's um, probably it. In which case, yes, there is. There is no sense in me asking who are they. So... Uh, <laughs> We'll move on to uh, to another lore-related question. Uh, this one comes from Colin Parker, the head of the Scavengers Network, and it contains a certain level of profanity that I am not going <laughs> to read out loud. Uh, but I will use words that will give you the picture. Colin says, What's up with this fun wall, though, Ty? I don't know why it perplexes me so, but it's like a curtain I can't pull back. I want to pull back the curtain. Colin is not a wall climber. He's a wall breaker. Yeah. What's, up, what's up with the wall, Ty? Um, so first of all, I, I want to say that uh, Colin has been listening to the show. Like, I think when he sent these questions, he was about halfway through the show. And then with the Thanksgiving holidays, like driving around a lot, he has in the last couple of weeks listened to like 20 episodes or something. And so he has been sending me constant questions about stuff. And I have just had to keep telling telling him, you'll, you'll get to that eventually. <laughs> but What's up with the wall? Uh, originally, the wall was just a narrative device. Like before, before I came up with doing this as a show, the the wall was a not a narrative device. It was a a campaign tool for me. It was an impassable border, right? Yeah, so that I could like I could have a full sandbox without having to create an infinite world. Since then, um, the wall has. Oh, what is the wall? Like, I don't know how to answer that. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is the wall? It's, it started out as the line you drew in the sand to keep things reined in so you could define everything within it. Mm -hmm. And yet now we've seen outside of it. The wall is very important to the past, present, and future of this world. That's what I'll say. And I think that was a good segue question into a question that I wanted to ask you, uh, which was how much of the things you've included in the SCQ canon, are you retrofitting in as you go versus how much are you planning from the get-go? Like, for instance, the example I thought of was Father Pard being a Brega tiefling. There is no way you could have planned for that one because that didn't exist until before Tal's arc. So where's the balance if you had to estimate a percentage between stuff you're retrofitting onto things you've said before and that makes it cool uh, versus things you planned from the beginning? I think that's a very good one to ask about uh, or the, a very good example. The father part being a Brega tiefling. I couldn't have planned that because the idea for the Brega tieflings was fleshed out with you, Mason. Um, I, I think I was kind of the originator of that that concept. Um, but we did a lot of like back and forth to develop what those guys were. Um, so I couldn't have possibly intended for that to be Father Pard, right? Wrong. Um, kind of. <laughs> Father Pard... Wait, what? <laughs> Father Pard was always a tiefling. Oh my gosh. Okay. He was always a tiefling from the first time that um, Clara spoke to him on 
the sending stone. He was always really? a tiefling. Yes. Really? Always a tiefling. You did nothing to hint at that that I can remember. That would have been something that uh, Mallory could have discovered in Alton's first arc if she had decided to enter Congress Monastery a different way and had stumbled upon... Uh, basically, there was a, a way that she could have gone into the building. I, I don't remember the exact logistics of it. That would have taken her through his office and she would have found him without the illusion. I, I think I also I think I also reference him uh, leaning over to move through a um, uh, doorway, which is to give room for his horns. <laughs> oh, okay, fuck all the way off. That is, <laughs> I, I legitimately think I did that. I'm no, I, fuck all the way off because that's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> and I absolutely love that so much. Yeah. Um, but that brings uh, sort of a second part to this question that I hadn't intended. It kind of an observation slash question. There must be a sort of interesting balance of coming up with things to retrofit into the canon that actually comes from planning what a player might do in a role-playing game setting. Because unlike if you were to just be telling a story or doing a piece of audio fiction mm -hmm. and you were planning and scripting it, you're accounting for choices people might have to make. And so the paths they don't take, you've already come up with information that maybe doesn't come out to the listeners yet. And you can sort of roll that snowball forward and have it show up later. Does that happen a lot? <sighs> Let me clarify a little yeah, bit. Yeah, clarify Think, the question. Things you haven't shown on screen explicitly, but came up with in case a player encountered them and then decided to use them later. How yeah. often does that happen? So, so like an example of that would be if I came up with an idea for a character, the people don't interact, don't meet that character. Do I use that character in a later arc in a place that that original character would have never gone? So like, let's say I come up with... Um, Billy Bob, Billy Bob the Dragonborn, who's hanging out in Cirque, and, but Alton never encounters them. Do I then have Billy Bob the Dragonborn show up in the very next arc halfway across the world? Yeah, kind of what kind of because that's like the old DM standby of like, oh, well, put this back in my bag of tricks. But I meant more. I guess that's still the same thing because you're fleshing out details. You do or don't do that. I don't do that super often. Okay. Um, usually like sometimes I will, sometimes I will, but usually I don't. If I commit to the idea that there is a person in a particular place or, or that there was a thing somewhere that someone did not encounter, usually that person or thing stays there that, and, and is not used later. And part of the reason I do that is because I am worried that I will forget that they did pop up. And then I'll end up duplicating it or or whatever. So like if if I come up with something for a quest, it stays there. Usually there are some exceptions to that. There were some characters that uh, were at St. Simone's that um, again, using Alton as the example again and again, um, there were some characters that Alton would have could have potentially encountered working with the Lumineers that I don't think those characters exist anymore. Oh, I, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think that because Alton never encountered them whatsoever, I don't really like how those characters, what the, what the existence of those characters said about the hierarchy of the church. And so since I never had to make that canon because nobody encountered it, I've said, nope, fuck it. Those guys are gone. 
But do you ever make a decision, say you liked what they said about the hierarchy of the church? Have oh. you ever had something like that and then decided, oh, well, now that's a facet I didn't think of and I'm going to use that, not with these characters, but later. More, not, not quite the same thing as a DM's bag of tricks where you're reusing assets, essentially, but reusing facets or ideas that are spawned from choosing from the choices players don't make. I'm having a really hard time... With my phrasing? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm having a really hard time with so, your phrasing. I, I'm worried that I'm, I'm not going to answer the question that you're, you're asking. So uh, hopefully it's, it's more clear in post. I might just be phrasing things poorly. Um, say that you had these characters that you just referenced in Alton's arc, and they were going to reveal an aspect of the hierarchy of the church you didn't like. Yeah. Imagine that they were going to reveal a, an aspect of the hierarchy church that of the church that you did like. Would you then find yourself taking that aspect and applying it somewhere else the church has brought up? Not oh, with yeah. those characters, but taking the facet that those characters had. Yes, 100%. Yes, 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 yes. So you so you do do the quote-unquote DM's bag of tricks with ideas. Yes. Okay. Yes, with ideas. That was the sort of core of my original question. Okay, cool. Sorry, that took me a little bit to like get what you're saying. Yes, I 100% do that. Yeah, it's a hard thing to articulate. Yeah. So you, you do do that. I do do that. Um, another lore-related question, but just completely different tack and less philosophical. Colin Parker asks this one, and I can tell also from reading through Colin's questions that he was listening progressively more and more. Yeah. Uh, but th <laughs> this one is one that I think is really interesting uh, because it's touched on briefly in Deirdre's arc, her second arc. Are the corrupted beasts related to the undead people? Because Sage Orion is trying to have them bond with them. And we've also seen something with the bargainer that I am theorizing is similar to what that bond might have looked like. So, Ty, take it away. Are the, un are the corrupted beasts related to the undead people? <laughs> Colin asked me this um, off air, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I told him and nothing more, which is yes, but not in the way you'd probably think. Okay. Is there anything more you can put on there? Um, Does the bond that Sage Orion is trying to explore have anything to do with your answer just now? Yes. Um, they have a connected history, and they are... A, a, hmm. I don't think I can say anything else. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's why the that's why the lore ones are are tricky. Yes. Um. So let's drop into a couple ones, uh, sort of about the production of the show and sure. uh, the the behind the scenes stuff that you get into. Uh, this one also from Colin, but I think it really helps us segue into this section really well. Colin wants to know what is your process for audio and crafting the narrative in post-production? Because it obviously becomes more polished every time. So I'm wondering how you break things down and how you approach things. So we could talk about this forever. I specifically yeah. talk about this with you forever off mm -hmm. the air, but highest level, biggest abstraction, what are your like? What is your philosophy going into the editing process? Gotcha. So this is this is post production. So we're not talking about the you know planning for a recording. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about post production, like yeah, after everything gritty. has been created. The um, nerd and, shit. Uh, yeah, the nerd shit. So um, there's a few things. One, I try to do everything I can to make each person's individual audio track sound as close to one another as possible. 
That's very difficult, obviously, because some people are using very different mics. Um, hey, Eli, you got sh- you got shit mic technique. <laughs> um, yeah, Eli's worse than Tucker. <laughs> um, but also, you know, that being said, like, I'm not going to focus on I, I would rather record with a friend who is recording on a laptop and who I really enjoy playing with than somebody that I, you know, even somebody really, really talented who has like a wonderful mic and who has great mic technique. I don't, I don't give a shit. I want to record with Eli. <laughs> but that that's a big part of your process is then taking that audio that is sort of by necessity, uh, a, a lower quality than someone who has ridiculous amounts of resources. Yeah. And try and to making make it sound um, the same, trying to make everything sound as similar as possible. Put those um, files together and I try to cut out as much stuff that is like unrelated to the show as possible. Listeners of the show probably notice that I do bloopers. And the reason I do that is because there's often little things that I think disrupt the flow of the show where we're like clarifying rules or where somebody asks like a lore question that I think is interesting, but is not like relevant to what's going on or we are just joking about bullshit or whatever. So, so your, uh, your process just to keep things at a high level is you first make sure that everyone's audio sounds as close to each other as possible in level and equalization and timbre and everything. Your second thing is that you then edit for flow so that you sort of get the main idea. Yes. Then what's the next step you take while I'm editing for flow, I'm adding markers in the show, uh, in my, my file that say, this is where I should add different types of sound design. So uh, this is, you know, somebody has entered a new room, so they, I need to change the ambiance or somebody casts a spell. So I need to add a spell sound effect, that sort of thing. Once I have completely gone through the whole show, I've chopped up the audio to have the flow good. I've put in all the markers. I go back in and actually do the sound design. So I add the sound effects and everything. Um, now, yes, that aspect of it, the sound design aspect. I know you know this. I am a huge nerd. That is like my favorite thing is mm-hmm. sound design. And so I, I want to just dip our toes in it briefly without going completely off track. I would like you to share three little tiny tips that you think really improve things. And to give you a sense of what I'm referring to, I'll reference one of the things you do that I really like from a sound design perspective. And it is that you will put, if a, if a character is going to uh, open a door and the person is saying, okay, Leslie opens the door. You don't do Leslie opens the door, door sound. You do Leslie. O door sound pins the door, you lay it over it and it makes it sound more immediate. So things like that. Give me three of those little tips of sound design tricks that you think make a big difference. Quick comment on, uh, on what you just said. The reason I do that is because I feel like that makes it feel more like I am narrating what is happening rather than I am rather than we are, are adding sound design after the fact. You know, the way you phrased it to me before that I thought was perfect when I brought this up last time was you said it does. It makes it not feel like the player pushes a button and then a thing happens. Yes, exactly. And, and that really helps with immersion. So um, getting back to three small sound design tips. Thing one, if you are going to add ambiance, add it while you are editing the audio, because I feel like having the, op- the pad of ambiance when you are listening to people talk 
it allows you to appreciate um, silence more uh, and allows you to leave in those pregnant pauses. It also allows you to forgive like little mouth clicks um, that would otherwise drive you insane while you're editing. And it also helps you when you do go in and add other sound effects later, it helps you uh, get a sense of the space that those sound effects need to live in. Um, I have nodded vigorously through all of that. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, thing number two. Thing number two. So on that that same note of uh, make, having sound effects live in the space that things are happening in, um, a thing that I listen to sometimes in, in other audio dramas and and actual plays that, I, that have sound design is that they will have the sound effect of somebody, say, crunching a can, and the crunching a can sound just sounds like a can being held up to a mic and they crunch the can. When people are crunching a can in a cathedral. And that's ridiculous. If you have Reverb. like if you have the the background audio of like if the ambiance sounds like you're in a cathedral, add the reverb, add the equalization to make the sound effects sound like they're living in the same space as the room that the people are in. Here is a tiny tidbit question to tack onto that one. Again, not going too deep, just a yes or no, because I have to resist my own urge to go too deep on this. Do you also run your ambience through the same reverb that you're putting your sound effects through? Because I, I have found doing that, I've gotten really into using convolution reverb. Well, I won't get into how that works, but it, you can sample real world spaces to do it. I put my ambience through my reverb bus at a lower level. Do you do that or not? I occasionally do that. I don't do it all the time, um, which is mostly, I think, because I've already found uh, I only started recently using buses and they have saved. They have saved me uh, so much. <laughs> um, they've saved me so much work. But the thing is, I had already gotten some of the um, ambient sounds sort of dialed into how I like them. So I haven't needed to. Uh, but I, I'll probably end up doing that with the next arc that's about to come out. And the final sound design little tidbit. Oh, boy. So this this next one, the final bit tidbit is kind of very specific to actual plays, but maybe you can find a way to apply it to other types of audio dramas or whatever. But a thing that I really like doing is I, I've gotten very into adding effects, vocal effects to the characters that are living in the world, the player characters, the NPCs and so forth. And then not having any extra audio effects on the players themselves and on the DM. Um, and I feel like that creates a very sharp divide that just makes it very clear when somebody is talking in or out of character. That way, even when somebody isn't speaking in a character voice per se, um, it's still very clear to the listener that that person is speaking in character. Um, and I just think it makes it easier for the listener to follow. That is one of my favorite things that you do uh, inside character quests. And I, I think it's also, as I've been doing that more, I feel like I've, I can't think of a good example of this, but I feel like I've used that to basically like tell jokes as the like 
the it, in post production things. Yeah, because you can have you can either have a person say something they said as table talk come out of the character's mouth, which you've yes. done to me as Talbotin several times, <laughs> or you can do the inverse and just have you know when a when a character someone starts saying wild shit as their character, you have it cut back to real world. Yeah, or one of the things that I that I like to do is when um, somebody is saying something as their character. And you slowly hear them realize that that's really stupid and their character wouldn't say it like having it blend between the two. It's it's very fun. So we'll just really quickly recap those three tidbits oh, before oh, I oh. hit. Oh, I will also I just want to just throw this out there. Um, my sister, uh, well, both my sisters gifted me with a subscription to a um, sound effects library recently, and I use it on the Mysteriously LLC <clears throat> the last two episodes of the Mysteriously LLC uh, arc. And oh my God, the time it saved me from having like, instead of having to constantly look for like copyright free stuff. Yes. Just having like a, a library of quality sound effects made my life so much easier. It made the uh, sound effects for clutch like possible. The thing, the thing that bugs me about that as someone who also, I recently invested in a sound effects library and it is life changing. Uh, and as someone who really loves free culture um, and using resources that are free uh, and sort of open source culture, it bothers me. But at the same time, it is an absolute lifesaver to have cataloged, searchable, yes. tagged libraries. And, and, and I should point out that, like, I did not start using uh, start using doing sound design, sound effects until like what, episode 33. And then I didn't buy things until like. 85 or 89 or whatever the hell. So like almost 50 episodes, I was just using free stuff. So like it is possible it, just is. because you think that, you know, like you can't afford it. That's fine. Like you can still do stuff. Absolutely. And it can sound and it can sound just as good. It just takes a little bit of overhead work. Yeah. Um, so just to recap your three sound design points before moving to the next question. Uh, number one was add the ambience ambience <laughs> number one was add the ambient sounds while you're still spacing out the vocals. So that way you can appreciate pregnant pauses and timing. Number two was to make sure you're seating your sound effects within the space so that they don't sound like they're separate, put them in the reverb, EQ them to match. And the third thing was that you can use your created space to also create no space outside of the sound design. And you can use that to either distinguish between areas or also for comedic effect and help heighten things. Perfect. I've, I will refrain from getting deeper into sound design stuff and let's move back and talk. Uh, we'll transition with a little show and format question. This one also comes from Derek from how not to DM. Uh, Derek says, will the last story arc be a main arc with main characters who solve the issue or at least main story arc adjacent? Um, the answer to this is yes and no. I, so I, I've mentioned before that I have an end to the show in mind, or I have an end to the plot in mind, um, which may change. I, I'm, it has already changed in response to player decisions, I should say. But I've had a, I've, from the very beginning, I've had a conclusion to the plot in mind. And that will be, at the very least, uh, main story arc adjacent. Probably can't say too much more about that than that. Um, that being said, let's say that I reach the end of SCQ's planned plot, like the overarching narrative, the main quest, as it were, and every all the big stuff that I had planned from the beginning is done. 
if that happens, ideally what I would like is if, you know, maybe every Halloween or just basically like whenever I feel like it, I just record another another quest, another small quest and like drop it in the feed. But at that point, it would just be whenever I feel like it, you know, um, and, and that wouldn't necessarily be tied to the setting that wouldn't necessarily be tied to um, the original plot. It would just be whatever I feel like doing. So like maybe what? I do something. Should I rephrase this? No, Ty, it just yeah. brings to mind a really heady philosophical question that I now need answered. Okay, go for it. Are you doing SCQ because you have a story to tell? Or are you doing SCQ because you want to do a podcast like this? Because it sounds to me like you have a story to tell and that's why. Uh, because if you would, f the the slight glimmer of relief that I saw reflected in your eyes when you thought about the end of it is something no. so abnormal to my Project Goblin heart. Why are you making SCQ? I, I should make the point that the current, I, I cannot imagine being done with SCQ in the next two years. Like, I feel like it it would it has more meat on its bone than that. Um, and whenever I stop SCQ, sorry, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to answer your actual question. Uh, your question was, do you have a story or do you have a... Uh, uh, why are why are you making SCQ? Do you have a story that you've wanted to tell or do you want to have a podcast and have the experience of making uh, a cool story? It like I recognize they can be two sides yeah. of the same coin yeah. or even the same side. But why? What's your motivation? The plot. I feel that the main plot, the main quest of SCQ was designed to be boring. Because the point of SCQ is that the lives of the unimportant people can be just as compelling and just as interesting as the main big important thing. Um, and that sort of guiding ethos of the creation of the show is the reason you want to make yes, it. Yes, I am more interested in, in the process of making the show than I am in the main story. Which is why I'm able to so casually say whenever SEQ ends, it's not because I'm it's not because I'm like looking for an end or anything like that. And, and in fact, I think that's I think it's better that I'm not looking forward to telling the story because I'm not trying to rush to get it done. I don't think I'm not trying to rush to get it out there. I want to take this story and do it right because the journey of telling this story is so much more important to me than the end of the story. You know what I mean? 100%. Okay. I think that, yeah, I, uh, that was a really good answer. Actually, <laughs> that felt like the beginning of a motivational speech. Like I felt emotions <laughs> starting to come up. Um, that's rad. That is absolutely rad. Cool. Um, so I, uh, at the risk of, um, or in the interest of not abusing my power of being the person who gets to interview you and thus interject my own questions all the time, I want to hit a couple more of the questions that were sent in by listeners. And you gave me a great segue that I've now ruined by talking into Perfect. another question from Derek, uh, which is how many more years of stories do you have planned before you'll decide to finish the show? Or do you not? Because it sounds almost like you, I don't, I can't tell if you do or don't anymore. Um, have I mean, sort of a, a guiding timeline. 
I, I've said this before, like the the original um, the basic idea of the end of this show I've had in, in my mind since the beginning. I could have gotten to that within the first, I think, 15 episodes of the show. I could have done that, but I was enjoying doing the show. So I kept I kept going. And so that is how things are right now. Like I will I will keep the show going until it reaches an end. But I have an ending. So I I know how to satisfy satisfactorily end the show. So you're gumping. I don't know what that means, but yes. <laughs> well, you know, Forrest Gump, he's just started running and then he didn't stop. And then a bunch of people started following him and he just kept running because it's what he wanted to do. He just he just started running and decided he liked it. And then people were like, oh, my God, look at this guy running. And then he just stopped. And he was like, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're but, gumping. But I have. But I it's more of like a um, a thing where it's like Forrest Gump knows that at the end, when he finishes his run, he's going to take this bottle rocket out of his backpack and fire it off. And he's known that from the very beginning that whenever he stops running, he's got this bottle rocket that he's going to shoot. And Do that's me. I've in, in the interest of that, then, and I think I think still serving the spirit of Derek's question, I say that to make myself not feel bad about asking my own question again. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's in service of, of Derek's question. Do you think you'll hit an eventuality in the narrative where you're forced to resolve the climax you have planned outside yes. of your control? Yes? yes. Is that how you anticipate the show coming to an end? Mm, I don't anticipate being I don't anticipate being surprised when the show ends. I but I do anticipate the possibility of being surprised that the show has continued when I thought it was going to end. Oh, okay. But you, know you do I mean? you do think you will hit a narrative eventuality not of your own making that will force you to reveal the ending? For instance, are you going to get a character into a situation where they're going to suddenly force you to reveal the end of the show despite you not intending to? No, because the char a character will only get to the end of the show because I know that they are going to like like somebody you you couldn't go like oh I cast uh I cast spare the dying and that surprise unlocked unlocked the ending instead it would have to be like I have put you in the Walmart that's in the middle of Cirque where the big bad evil guy lives and I know that you're there so I know you're going to run into them it's it's not this stupid, but like that is the sort of thing like I the ending will only have the opportunity to come around, uh, come about because I have set that up for a player. So so it is it is designed in such a way that you won't accidentally be forced into it. Yes. Okay. So I will I will know it's coming, but a player might decide I'm just going to leave this fucking Walmart, in which case. Right. Because that's the tricky things. Players have agency and players make decisions. Uh, which leads to some interesting lore ramifications from that. So let's pivot back yeah. into a couple of these lore questions. Uh, here is one from Eli. Uh, Eli, your main side character guest and cohort in all of the... Uh, oh my God, I just listened to the last Flying Crow ad where you discussed what to fucking call them and it made me forget what you ended up actually calling them. Mini mini character quest? Micro character quest? Uh, minor. Something. Minor character quests, yes. This one comes from Eli, your sort of first side character guest in your cohort and all the minor character quests. Uh, Eli says, hey, dude, weren't the small sounding stones established as common tech in Silas's arc? Or was that only in that area? I'm trying to get a handle on the tech of the world. Ha ha. 
<laughs> yeah, so um, he's referring to the uh, what we confusingly call the sounding stones, um, which are these little, um, basically like radio devices that, uh, these little crystals, blue crystals that, um, oh boy, let me back up a little bit. So in SCQ, there are sending stones, these large blue crystals, very large, like bigger than a person, that only, there's only three of them known in the, uh, in the extant world that are used to send messages over very long distances. In Silas's arc, uh, there are these sounding stones, these little blue crystals, very small, that you could wear on, say, like a necklace, a pendant, that sort of thing, which the sending stones can sort of broadcast audio to those little ones, um, kind of like a, uh, and a radio tower going out to like little handheld radios. Right. Um, those are not common tech. They are lost tech that Goblin Godfrey had found and experimented with. And we kind of explored that a little bit in Tal's arc too, which was yes. kind of what the, one of the giveaways was that yes. Tal was lying. Exactly. Which I think is why Eli originally asked this. So, because he was... Right, but that but 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 that does bring up a good point. If they were so common back then in the days of Bregatone, how come they're not more widespread? Is there a reason we've only seen them in Flughaven, or is that just coincidence? Uh, were they common back in the days of Bregatone? You told and me they were. You said that it would be me, like me saying a hamburger. You mean like cow meat? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's exactly how you said it when I asked where I screwed up. <laughs> um. It's it's less like somebody not knowing what a hamburger is and more like a person claiming to be a butcher, not knowing the name of a particular cut of meat. OK, that's yeah, yeah. I guess that's fair. Yeah. Um, um, OK, uh, this one comes from Aaron, which is uh, at right time to draw on Twitter. Um, that just came in. Aaron says. Is there a part of the world we haven't visited in published episodes that you're eager to visit or explore? I know there is for me. Yeah, uh, there's a few. There's there's several different uh, places. I, I, when I made the map for the world, I left a lot of really big open blank spaces. Um, I'm really excited to eventually go to uh, the Three Brothers mountain range. I really want to spend more time in just generally small towns in SCQ, I want to explore more islands in the Salton Sea. And also, there is the sort of southeast area of the map. I have left very blank. And I've recently come up with an idea of what I want to have there. And I'm not, I'm not committed to it yet. But I think it would be really fun. And I'm just looking for a, a, a guest player that would fit for the idea that I have for that location. I'm really um, excited to know what that could be. Yeah, I want to. I want to explore more uh, isolated locations that do not have sending stones. Um, you know, places that are that we have just not talked about because they are separated from the communication with the rest of the world. Um, also, more stuff outside of the wall. Derek from How Not to DM podcast also asked, how has the underground world been kept a secret for so long? It seems that there's an, ex he didn't say this part, but to, to, to add on, it seems like you've established a very extensive tunnel system. Mm -hmm. How has that all been a secret for so long? 
In the forgetting, did they forget how to dig? There's there's a couple of answers to this. One is that um, the underground tunnels are probably mostly deeper than you would think. Um, so it's not something that you would just sort of stumble upon. And also the, the second answer to the question is that you will find out soon. Oh, okay. Eyes emoji. Yeah, <laughs> eyes emoji. Uh, all right. Well, we'll keep rolling on the lore questions. Um, Caitlin from Unnatural 20s asked, when you created Blue, the uh, cowboy, the blue cowboy. Really Blue Tibbs. Did you know that you'd bring him back in another arc? I don't think so. Um, I think when I, I don't even know, know that I thought that I would ever play him again. Like, I think that I was assuming that whenever I had the opportunity to play, uh, to be a player on SEQ, I would just do a new person each time. But I really enjoyed playing Blue, and I, I don't know when I decided that I wanted to bring him back. It was long before Talbot's arc, I will say. I had played with the idea of several different, um, of having him show up in several different quests, and I had played with the idea of several different people accompanying Talbot besides Blue. And I think that I, I think I made the decision to have Blue show up in Talbot's arc. I think it was like a couple weeks before we recorded, maybe a few days before we recorded. Did the fact that Blue is one of my all-time favorite SCQ characters play into that at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yes. that was rad. Yeah, that, that definitely did play into it. But you really did just make Blue then for that one shot uh, that Eli ran with no intention of bringing him back, and then you did. Yeah, totally. I, I made him up when I was uh, on a walk um, out with Sam, and I we were walking by some like fake... Wild, uh, old Wild West stuff, and I was annoying her by um, talking in Blue's <laughs> voice and being voice? <laughs> by doing that voice and being very patronizing. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was just walking walking along, and I was just like, "Well, hey there, little lady. Uh, how about we mosey on over to that sort of thing?" And a legend was born that day. And a legend was born. <laughs> And this comes from Aaron at Right Time to Draw on Twitter. Aaron asks, what is the most shocking decision a player made so far? Oh, boy. I mean, Silas deciding to basically let themselves uh, fall to their death and right. drown in a river. Right um, at the beginning. That was, I, I guess I can't really think of anything more shocking than that. That hooked me so fast. It was like, no, yeah. I'm not letting them pull me out. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. Yeah, yeah, I I can't really think of anything more shocking than that. Yeah, that's that's got to be it, right? <laughs> that's got to be it. Who doesn't choose to not drown? Yeah. This one also comes from Aaron uh, at Right Time to Draw on Twitter. Do you have the main character's adventure fully mapped out, and then see how the PCs affect it? Uh, kinda. Kinda, <laughs> kinda. Um, it, it's it's a it's a kind of. I, I know what they've been up to, um, more or less. Uh, but it's it's kind of kind of kind of vague. I I don't mm, not fully mapped out. It's mapped out, but it's not fully mapped out. Like I don't I don't know that they spent two weeks fighting this dragon and then spent three days recovering from it and then spent four days doing this. But I know you know more generally what they've been up to. Um, 
This is the one I should have gone to and I said my bad segue about lore characters having uh, an effect on the world and those ramifications of lore. This would have been a better question to segue into. So if you feel so motivated to drag and drop this one into the beginning probably of not. this section, <laughs> probably not, uh, then you should chop that bit out. Um, <laughs> this, uh, this one was one I thought of while we were talking and I, I, I am dying because it, it's bugged me and I just managed to forget it until we started talking today. In Deirdre's arc, what was behind the riddle lock? There was a riddle and I... All, all of the, all of the props in the world to to Briar for completely turning tail and leaving. But you presented a rhyming riddle that was like, if someone's nice, don't be chill. Just take this and kill, 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 or something. And and Briar just they turned and left. What's amazing to me about that is I put that in there specifically because Briar loves riddles. Really? Yes. And that they resisted was, it. That was purely a character decision on their part. And, and I loved them for it. That was so good. Hey, Briar, if you're listening, that is a level of impulse control that I can only ever aspire to. Yes. So um, what was behind it? I'm guessing we will never find out. At no, this point. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. So, um, there was, there was one thing that I won't tell you because it was a very, a potentially very, very important lore thing. That they missed. Um, that would have basically told them what that place was originally for. I don't think that they found that out. No. No. Um, but it would have told them what that location was originally for. The other thing that they would have gotten was potentially armor and weapons. Armor and weapons. So it was. Yes. That was my thought was that it was probably some kind of an offensive thing. Here's a question. Which Did I, you, I'm pretty sure I had planned before they decided to go down into the, the place without a club. Ah, so like it, it could have been useless, but then it became very useful. But then they didn't get it. I was going to ask if that was something you did because they went down without armor. Nope. Um, because I assumed it would be a weapon. And then also, did this factor into your decision at all? That would have been an offensive choice, signaling less of an in inclination to talk it out and thus uh, removing a chance to get the lore from Sage Orion. Is that why you planted some lore inside of the weapon choice as well? Or did that not factor in oh, at all? Oh, no, uh, that did not factor in. Easy answer. Um, interesting question, but easy answer. No, absolutely that, that no. Did not. How much do you think of things like that? Sort of like a coder, like if this, then this, and I want to reveal this information no matter what. So I want to put this here and this here. Not as much as I should. Um, Eli has yelled at me for uh, yelled uh, jokingly for not seeding uh, more lore and being more forceful and getting lore out there is he really wants to know stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I, I usually if somebody doesn't get lore in a location, I'm, I'm fine with it. Fair. That's interesting. And you don't usually plan for getting some of it either way. No. If people miss, they miss it. Uh, keeping in that scene. Um, Which I feel like, uh, sorry, just a quick go side. Go for it. I feel like that also plays into my thought process uh, as far as like making baddies and stuff. Like I try to make people and situations appropriately difficult, difficult for the level that they would be difficult in fiction. So if it ends up being too hard, that's fine. But if it ends up being too easy, that's fine. It's appropriate to the world, not to the player character. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, because um, 
combat is something that's hard. This is not on the question list, but I feel like this is a fruitful little branch we can pluck a couple things from. Combat is a difficult thing to convey in an audio drama format because D&D combat is unarguably clunky and mechanical. It's meant to be played with miniatures, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's already a lot of rules fudging that happens if you don't play with minis, let alone trying to make something fitting for an audio broadcast. How do you find... Um, I think probably one of the best examples of compelling combat was Lore's battle at the top of Mount Reno with the Bargainer. Yeah. Um, do you want to just talk briefly about how you approach making combat something? Because you you, just, you did mention that one of the things is that you don't scale for uh, defeatability or anything like that. You yeah. scale for fiction. What else do you do? Um, I make I make the NPCs fear death. Um, so nobody is going to. <laughs> <laughs> it so sounds like a joke, but it, it is a real thing that I think a lot of people fuck up. There are so many DMs, and this is fine if you're doing it like a board game, if you're doing it like a, a high action thing, whatever, that's that's fine. But like, how many uh, 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 guards would really, in a real situation, fight to their last breath? N- nobody. Yeah, like, no, nobody not, would. Not a lot of people. And, and and on a similar similar tact, how many people would go for murder? Yeah, like like that. There aren't a lot of people that do. And when when you encounter somebody that is really going for the kill, then you know that they are, and that they are a person who could probably hurt you, who thinks they can hurt you. So you will react appropriately, run away if you have to, that sort of thing. And I've heard it argued too, that D and D as a system is, is kind of geared towards combat simulation uh, first Mm -hmm. in terms of how its mechanics are structured. So I think it's important and a very interesting thing that you do try and make the combat feel less of a focus and more realistic in that sense. Yes. And and so because, uh, because NPCs are, are more willing to run away or bargain or barter, that also means that, um, like combat tends to end more quickly and to rounds tend to go faster because a player, a bad guy might not be convinced to kill you yet. So they might not do something that would have been, that would have taken longer and would have, but also would have been more likely to cause damage. You know, another thing that I think really helps with, uh, doing cinematic combat. And I'm not sure I, I do this great all the time, but I try, whenever I know there is going to be a fight coming, I try to think about the actual space that somebody will be in and try to make sure that the space is interesting in and of itself. For the sake of environmental fighting? Yes. So, for example, in Leslie's arc, when Leslie was going into the Derma Lodge, Leslie ended up encountering that big hulking guard not just in a room in a cave, but in front of a big metal door at the end of a long bridge, a thin bridge in the center of a big cavern with a long drop on either side, you know? So, like, you you hear that, and it's like, okay, so there's a big, narrow space. If you fall, it's you will get hurt, but also maybe I could knock them off. That sort of thing. Like yeah. I try to make it I try to make it fairly simple so that the listeners can hold it in their mind, but I also try to make it obvious how you could use the space to your advantage or how other people could hurt you, if that makes sense. Yeah. I to me, obviously I'm not I, I, I haven't done this 
Um, but I feel like that would be one of the hardest parts of adapting D and D to an audio format is, uh, is the combat and, and trying to think of all of those things. We actually ran into a problem, um, when we were recording the last episode of uh, Tal's Ark, it actually sounded better in when I was listening to the raw audio than than I thought it was going to. It sounded pretty good, but I decided I was like, "Oh, let's let's make a let's get a um a virtual tabletop so that we can keep track of all the yeah, people." Yeah, I remember that. What ended up happening is we kept thinking like we kept saying, "Okay, well, if I." shoot this person and I use my movement this way, then I can get around this person and I have to angle myself so that I can shoot around this. Oh, is that tape? Is that a table or is that a wall? You know, it, it became that's, way too cumbersome. That's fun at the table for the people at the table. Yes. But it's not as fun to listen to because we're privy to information that the audience isn't. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I, yeah. However, I don't, I don't think it ultimately ended up coming out too, too bad, but yeah. No, no, I think it, it worked out much, much better than I thought it was going to. And like I said, even the raw audio sounded leagues ahead of what I thought it was going to, how it's, I thought it was going to sound. It's tricky too, because if you do have listeners who are sticklers for D and D, you have to fudge so many combat rules when you're doing an audio only thing. Totally. Um, my D and D group that I play with recently, we switched from dungeon world, which is entirely narrative based to D and D, which is more mechanical. And we're using maps for everything. And it's a very different way that the game is played when you're paying very close attention to exactly how much movement you have and whatnot. Um, let's, let's see. I, we've got a lot of questions uh, still on the list. And Do you want to burn through some real quick? Yeah, let's burn through like a lightning round. There's a handful okay. of questions I think we can get some short answers to. So, okay, all right, cool. Lightning round, Ty. I'm just going to go from the top to the bottom. This was asked by Colin Parker. Colin Parker asks, how are you? I hope you're well. I'm doing good. Brianna asks, do you have a method of choosing which dice you're going to use for the show on any given day, or do you have a go-to favorite set? For a long time, I only had uh, one or two dice sets, and it would just depend on whether I wanted to use the metal ones or the plastic ones. Now, I tend to use, uh, I come up with stuff that is themed for a character, because I have like four or five sets. These next three come from Derek, the absolute powerhouse from the How Not to DM podcast. Uh, uh, Derek says, in sequence, does the normal sending spell work where the stone may not? Um, the spell sending does not work within the wall. What the fuck? Really? Okay, hold on. We're coming back to that after. Would you consider more stories that are told in the past before the wall and skeletons came to be? Probably not. <laughs> are the wall and skeletons linked at all again if if so how hold on yes i won't tell you <laughs> don't say who but do you have a oh this one was asked by me don't say who <laughs> but do you have a favorite arc so far uh a few for different reasons okay and i think that was oh no there's one more in the lightning round uh we just didn't mark it this one comes from eli eli says why do i smell like a dirty old shoe all the time and also pick my nose at traffic lights and wipe it on the speedometer uh, I don't know, but I know that he also likes to drink the pee out of uh, Tortoise's bladder. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad for ripping on Eli. I've only like hung out with him, hung out with him, like talked to him a couple of times. But I love Eli. He's such a cool dude. Uh, even if he picks his nose at traffic lights. Yeah. Um, coming out of that lightning round, Ty, you said something that was really interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean the spell sending doesn't work inside the wall? That has not been demonstrated. Yes, it has. Um, when was it the, demonstrated? 
So I have said multiple times to anybody building a magic using character that they are not allowed to use a uh, spell that sends information um, instantaneously farther than, say, message. And that includes the spell sending. That is why sending stones are necessary. We have also, though, seen Father Crayon use sending outside of the wall. I don't remember Father Crane using sending. He used it at the beginning of Deirdre's arc to contact Sage Orion. Did he? Yes. We we see the um we see his actual like ritual com- material components. We don't actually see him doing the casting. And we did meant like I explicitly say that uh that that's what those material components were for. Mm, can you give me a history check? Okay. That's a 16. Dang, I guess you're right. Uh, Why did Sage (laughs) Orion do such a dramatic heel turn in kidnapping Mads when he could have done something? Oh, this was asked by me also. Um, (laughs) Why did Sage Orion do such a dramatic heel turn in kidnapping Mads when he could have done something else to get uh, like willing participants? Is it really that hard for him to find folks? Because I think the prospect of being imbued with some magic from the bond with one of these corrupted creatures might be enough to draw some willing people in. Yeah, so um, the reason for that, uh, which I, I was hinted at in the arc, um, but only kind of vaguely, and I don't think that uh, this was, was ever explicitly said, um, is that people avoided that location. Uh, Father Crayon did not know this. I, I, should, I, will, I will go ahead and specify. Father Crayon did not know this, and if he had, he would not have sent Deirdre there without the knowledge. Sage Orion had been basically if if there was a if there was a a traveler, a trader, someone who happened to be going by that location, Sage Orion would kidnap them, I guess is the word, and experiment on them. And that resulted in the deaths of many people, and he was running short on experiment subjects. Um if he had liked Mads more, um, he probably would not have tried to experiment on Mads, um, but instead he did not particularly care for them as a kid. He found them annoying, um, and so he didn't. Um, he would have also, if uh, if Deirdre had tried to talk to him more and had had probed him for questions for information, then he might have alluded to. She might have been able to like suss out what he was doing uh, before it came to that point. Interesting, and he would have probably, as as he did when you you saw um, him try to charm her at the end of the uh, yeah yeah at the end of the arc, he would have tried to get her to help him. So I guess the thing that still strikes me, despite that new information, was the very bold decision to try and kidnap Mads, who would obviously be missed. Like that seems like a level of desperation. That I, I guess he's just at that level of desperation. Yeah. Okay. He he is. Um, one of the worst people in the show. Right next to not, huh? Yeah. Um, and I I really I, I wanted to have a, I wanted to play a character who was really, really, really awful. And because so much so much of SEQ is about exploring uh the good in everyone. And I wanted to play a bad guy who had sort of lost faith in everyone else and lost faith in themselves. And was so 
Sage Orion is so afraid of his own mortality that he was willing to go to horrific lengths to avoid it. And we see that some, we, we kind of see that in the fact that he used illusory magic to make himself, to make himself look young all the time. Yeah. To make himself look like he was in his prime. Also sort of the uh, fascination with controlling time as implied by the illusions, uh, exactly, by the yeah. clock uh, yeah. and also the clock stopping and time stopping. Um, mm-hmm. Although that, I think, is just set dressing. But damn, it actually, you did do a really good job of set dressing in that. Man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, see, that's such cool stuff. How much work do you think goes into designing the backgrounds of scenes like that? How, how often do you think that deeply about a character's wants and needs when they have a domain like that? I, I'm guessing me, probably similar thing for Yosalda. One, one quick thing. Um, fun, fun little, this is just a little tidbit that I don't know if it ever came up. His illusory magic, uh, that spell, that that consistent spell that made him look young, was um, located, was built into his belt. It was Orion's belt. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Sorry, that was supposed to be a sort of meta hint hint for Briar. Wow. Wow. That's (laughs) something. Damn it. That's the kind of stuff I like, but I'm mad that I like it. <laughs> um, so, so how much work goes into the average background scene like that? I mean, obviously, you know, you're not going to paint every forest with the intention of foreshadowing, but how often do you find yourself pondering over the small details and sort of uh, hints like that in the backgrounds of major scenes? I think thematic hints are, are probably fairly rare and That's they sort of the like word I was come up for. Yeah. And they sort of come up naturally. As far as like a, a location such as like uh, the lighthouse in that Professor Tucker works out of, I spent a lot of time thinking about that more so than I than I thought about like any of the combat locations or whatever. Like thinking about how would this person use this space? Like why would these different rooms exist? What would you know? What is the function of all of these things? And also, kind of thinking about how I will sound design those spaces um, mm. is also a thing comes into play. Um, wanting to have like you know, like he's heating himself up with like a, a radiator uh, yeah. type of magic. Yeah, I I really liked the radiator. Um, and and yeah, that that is another cool space. I'm trying to think of another example of a really well like a not a really well-designed space because there's a lot of those, but a very deliberate like domain of a person. I'm trying to remember if we've explored where Yosalda is based out of. No, we have not. Um, I thought Alton was in Yosalda's when Alton was in Yosalda's. Oh, Yosalda. My God, why do I keep doing that? I, what about Hosalda? Because you say we haven't seen Hosalda's domain really, but I thought when Alton was originally in Hosalda's clutches, I thought Alton, part of that took place in Hosalda's sort of HQ. Hosalda would not uh, invite a stranger into her main place. She is kind of that that very like classic like what's what's the word like puppeteer uh, like marionette artist marionette like spy, like the spider on the web the, yeah the architect of of mm-hmm. plans. She has she has touched uh, several different things. Um, w- one of the reasons we haven't seen more of Hosalda is that most of her her primary stuff is based out of Cirque, and we haven't done a lot of quests in Cirque. I know so I we, tried, and you took me right out to Flukehead. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> C- uh, continuing down the lore lane, because we we're actually starting to make some headway on this list. There's only a couple of them left. Uh, this one's probably a quick answer. 
Uh, and the answer is probably eyes emoji. Derek again uh, asks, are there any skeletons who are aware of their condition who might be working to resolve the issue? Oh, oh, I can, I will 100% answer this. Yes. Um, I get the impression that Derek means resolve the issue in a way that's favorable to everyone, not resolve the issue through some horrible druidic ritual like all of them seem to be trying to do. Yeah, so I, hmm. Um, there's, at the very least, there was Maureen and and uh, her group, and there was also Professor, um, not Professor, Arcanist Query and his little group, and I think it is safe to assume that there are other skeletons who are also doing who are also aware of the fact that they are skeletons and and trying to do something about it i think that we've demonstrated though at least with arcanist query that there is a deliberate willful takeover urge there there was with with arcanist query there was not with maureen there wasn't really a dialogue with maureen though do we know that i will say that who knows about the rest of the people she was with? Maureen did not know that was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, because there was the whole band of them. I know Maureen didn't know, but I don't know yeah. what the motivations of that band. I didn't get the impression Maureen was the sort of like the spearheader of that. She wasn't. No. Poor Maureen. Yeah. She was, she was kind of like a sous chef situation. I'll pretend I know what that means and move on to the next question. Uh, if Leslie, this was asked by me, if Leslie is a librarian, how many libraries are there? Is that a really uncommon profession? Um, so in the world of SEQ, uh, libraries are jet, like basically always private libraries. You have to have a membership. This is kind of how uh, libraries worked for a, in a lot of cultures for a lot of real world history. Um, the idea of public libraries are is kind of rare. Leslie was trying to start a public library, a free library in um, the Three Brothers mountain range. Um, we also see uh, in the arc, in Blue's first arc, uh, which is set in Brotherly in the Three Brothers, um, one of the characters there had a private library, which um, dissolved by the end of the uh, by the end of Blue's arc. I forgot about that, but uh, yeah. that is tickling a little bell in the back of my brain. Yes, and I think that listeners could probably make a connection about that. We don't have long enough left in this recording session for me to sit in silence long enough to try and draw that connection myself, and I'm mad at you. I will say, uh, I will say this. <laughs> We know that there was a library in Brotherly, and we also know that after that library went away, Hosalda tried to start one up in Brotherly to take that one's place, or in the Three Brothers. I thought, uh, I thought Leslie, I thought Leslie was going up Rena to do that. She was going up to Rena to get a seed library from Professor Tucker. Oh, right. She wasn't actually going to set up there. That just that just slipped my mind from. Time. Getting the, the seed books. All right, Ty. Final three questions. Yes. First two are related. The last one is one that uh, I'm really curious about, uh, and I feel like it's one that'll bring us to a nice close. So the first question, uh, this was asked by Ty, interestingly. Oh, yeah. Um, at the end of episode three of Alton's arc, you wrote insert Alton three title. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> one second. At the end of episode 86, Alton gets warlocked. Oh, at the end of episode 86, Alton gets warlocked. You mentioned that you re-recorded that episode. 
Why? So uh, Alton, uh, Mallory and I originally recorded um, that single episode as two episodes. I really, we, we, Mallory and I had talked about what was going to happen in that episode because we basically wanted to treat it as, um, as setup for whatever Alton was going to do next because we, we needed, we needed to present some stuff for the world and for lore to basically progress the show's plot, you know, um, the, the larger plot of the, of the show. And we couldn't, we couldn't do that until we had this little, like this little mini arc that ended up being episode 86. We tried recording that originally as something much more freeform where, and much more sandboxy where I tried to give tons of, uh, of freedom in, in what she was going to do. So, so basically the point of that arc is Alton is trying to figure out how to help Maureen, right? She's right. Alton's trying to figure out like, what am I going to, you know, how can I help Maureen? And I really wanted to make sure that by the end of this episode, at the end of this this little mini arc, Alton knew that. Mallory knew that. And the problem that we ran into was that doing it in a freeform manner, a sandbox manner, I was throwing so much different lore at Mallory that Mallory was just like, I don't fucking know what the important stuff is. Mm. I don't know what what is actually like what actually is relevant to to fix to helping Maureen and what's just set dressing. And I could and I realized this at the end of the set, you know, like maybe what would have been 20 minutes before the end of the second episode. I was like, I don't know how to get you there with this with the way we structured this. Like, I don't know how to do this without just telling you what to do next. Yeah. So instead we scrapped that. Oh, also I will, I will also add that in the heat of the moment during that episode, I made a lore decision, which I fucking hated. And I was so mad at myself for doing. And I was, and I'm very glad that I have been able to completely scrap that. Oh, <laughs> it was, it was really stupid. Um, I hated it. All but the anyway, skeletons wear baseball hats. All the skeletons wear baseball hats. Uh, basically I, 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 there was a certain class of people that I said, like, ah, oh, this group of people all have this very specific type of magic. And I thought it was, and I was like, oh, this is really stupid. I shouldn't have done this. Gotcha. Um, it, yeah, it was very, very dumb. So you were, but you got a chance to retcon. I, I retcon that because it's, it's not, it, it only showed up in the episodes that we didn't end up releasing. So we redid that little mini arc as a semi-scripted, a semi-scripted sequence where it was basically, well, you guys listen to it. Um, it's the semi semi scripted sequence. Like I did not script any of our dialogue, any of our conversation or anything, but Mallory knew like, okay, we're going to have this scene where like you're learning lore stuff. And then this scene where we sort of talk about it, this scene where there's some new lore stuff. And then we talk about it, this scene and back and forth. How did that feel compared to telling a story through a role playing game? How did it feel making that? It felt, it was Weird. I I felt like we like it removed a lot of the stakes of the arc. It felt like there was not any not as much drama, and I don't think it would have been good to have continued that format for more than a single episode. Mm. You know, um, because it, it just it just didn't feel like like why are you doing this as a as an actual play and not just as a scripted thing? 
Um, right. I actually do a, a slight twist on that in an episode that's not that hasn't been released yet that I think vastly improves on it and learning from how that flowed with uh, with Mallory's. Um, I think I, I was able to twist it and make it so that there is there are real stakes in the upcoming thing that hasn't been released yet. Um, do you think that's something you'll continue to do then? Or is that something you're going to still use sparingly? Very sparing. Because that does seem to blur the lines of what is an actual play. I don't mind blurring the lines of what's an actual play. No, Um, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I'll use this probably very sparingly. Um, Also because you don't seem to have a vested interest in pushing the story to its conclusion. Yeah, Like you stated earlier. Yeah, this, this was done mostly because like I didn't feel like I didn't think that the show would benefit. I didn't think that listeners would enjoy listening to this little like in between thing for as long as we would have needed to have it stretch out to be um, a uh, sensible to be sensible. Yeah. And to get to where you needed to. Yeah. So with all that said, I'm just going to move to the final question. Go for it. Having made SCQ, for just shy of four years now, it's crazy. what have you learned that would have changed how you would approach making the show again? So if you were to start over, but with all of the knowledge you have now, what would you do differently? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, one of the big things is the knowledge that, like, I'm actually going to do this. Mm, you know, That's a like big th- thing when it comes to starting a project. Yeah, like the fact that I'm actually going to keep this up. I think that I would have been a little bit more aggressive. This is very self-serving, but like I would have probably tried to get one or two. Would I have done this? I don't think I would have. Hmm. This is more advice to anybody that wants to do a show like SCQ. Sure. I mean, that's sort of the purpose of this question at its core. You would probably be smart in the first couple of arcs to get somebody from a more successful media to guest on your show. Uh, I don't think that I would do that. Can you put trombone sounds in right now? I don't think that I would, I would have done that, but like, I really think that like having somebody come on for like a longer thing would really like have made more people, but that wouldn't have made the show better. No, it would have possibly given you a boosted launch. And there's a lot of debate on how much a launch matters. Yeah. Um, Um, I'm in the camp that it doesn't so much. I, I think that I, I think I would have uh, another thing that's that's very important for somebody that's starting a one on one game like this. Get somebody to help you with social media. That's yeah. because I fucking I don't enjoy doing that. And and no. get somebody to help with advertising, get somebody to help with social media, because like me, I, I would rather spend any spare energy I have on making the show better, not on getting people to listen to the show. Yes. Um forever battle yeah another thing uh i would have started putting ambiance maybe not sound design but ambiance into the show from the very beginning interesting you wouldn't start out again and just go full out the gate with sound cues like you have um i did not so the sound cues i think uh would have taken me because you weren't sure you were gonna do it at that point i wasn't as confident that i could make the sound design and like sound effects and stuff sound good Adding ambiance reduced my anxiety while editing um, and dealing with those like and silences and stuff. It, it made those feel so much easier to deal with. You know, the words mouth sounds exist for a reason. <laughs> um, 
that it, it would have just benefited me, I think, to start doing those from the very beginning because they're, they're e it's easy. It's easy to add ambiance. Yeah. And it makes it it makes editing the dialogue so much easier. Sound effects adds like another extra layer of difficulty. It makes making the show harder, not easier. Right. So I might have waited on that a little bit. That's fair. And, and you're right. Just ambiance adds so much because you're putting things in a space. Yes. And that is weirdly something I don't feel like is talked about as much in uh, like if you just like Google how to sound design something. Yeah. Um, but really making a space is so important. What else? Um, this is something I would actually tell myself to not to not worry about. I debated for a long time about adding music to the show. And I, I actually tried that a couple of times, like adding scoring background audio scoring to the show. Um, I, I tried a little bit. Really? And. No, no, thank you. I, I don't want that. We we had a little discussion about that. Uh, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. And I, I don't, I think there's lots of shows that do it very well. And I just, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm just not interested in doing that. Like, that's not the type of sound design I want to do. And so just tell myself, don't, don't worry about that. Don't. Plus, it's if not, consistency of design is important, and if you start something big like that, you're forced to continue it. Yes, yes. Um, any any other things? Any other? Yeah. Things? You get something short and pithy oh, about oh, it. Here's something. Uh, I would have wanted to make it clear that this is very like I, I would have wanted to drive home the fact that this is not just a generic fantasy setting from the very beginning mm. because I feel like I did not really do that until Silas's arc. Yeah. Cause you kind of, I mean, Roderick right out the gate, you get a night with serving Lumen like, yeah. uh, yeah, but, but it, it's, it's not just that it's, it's describing like, Oh, he goes into a forest. He's a person in like a small town, goes into a forest, goes into like this dungeon. And then Annie's thing is like, Oh, it's a person. Is that like a, a market and then goes out to a forest and then goes into a dungeon. And it's just, it's just, you know, generic fantasy Silas's arc. Okay. You're going into a swamp. There's mosquitoes. You can hear cicadas. There's like, and, and it's just, it's drawing on like, well, in Georgia drawing on my, my native, state my my hometown and stuff very directly to make this place to make this the setting of this show feel different from just any other fantasy show and i should I honestly i think i think the your point about silas's arc being a turning point in terms of uh setting presentation is huge because not only something about the combination of your modeled after georgia style and also the I guess supernatural is always present in fantasy because we're talking about magic, but there's sort of a dark supernatural element to Silas's arc that I felt like was a very different vibe from any other stuff we had seen yet. So yeah, I think, yeah. Driving home your setting in the first bit. It's, is it's funny. It's funny because monster of the week. Um, I, I feel like I'm a terrible, I'm terrible at running monster of the week. I just, I'm panicked the whole time. It's a weird um, system. I, I've heard people do it well, and I, I'm just not one of those. I enjoy playing it. Don't enjoy running it, but the nature of that show uh, of that game forced my hand in making the, tr into trying to make Silas's arc like creepier and darker. And I really do feel like that, has had a long-lasting positive impact on the show. Yeah, and also um, Amber is just oh my great. god, like, Amber as a player, so good. 
Amber's so decisions are so unexpected. I was blown away the entire time. Anytime you'd think, oh, I know what this character might do, Amber would do something, not the opposite, but something completely unthinkable that you would mm. not expect. Uh, and then yeah. and then you would, as you got to know the character more, you would be like, oh, I, I see why they did that. Right. Um, no, it was, it was honestly brilliant, yeah. brilliant character work that Amber did. Anyway, it is 10 o'clock here, so we should probably be wrapping things up. Uh, well, Ty, thank you for joining me on Side Character Questions. It was a pleasure to get to interview you. Honestly, a lot of really cool insight uh, into the process. Thank you for having me on. This was really great. Really appreciate it. Um, and, well, I, what, I don't know. I actually have never listened to the show before, so I don't know what your outro normally is. We just uh, uh, we like to make sure that we thank the people who write in the uh, questions. Okay. So a big thank you to uh, Derek from How Not to DM podcast, uh, Caitlin from Unnatural Twenties, Colin Parker, and Brianna. Uh, and if I missed anybody there, I'm sorry. But hey, if you want to get onto the next side character questions, just make sure you tweet at us with our relevant hashtag that you can find out about shortly before the show becomes recorded. Oh, and uh, just real quick, thanks for everybody that has ever been a player on SEQ. I really genuinely you guys are amazing i really enjoyed playing with all of you and i'm sure they had a pleasure uh, hanging out with you ty you've crafted such a fine and fun world and there's so much care that goes into it behind the scenes that's all for now folks join us next time on side character questions and that's, i'm gonna stop my recording Thanks to the Joy Drops for the use of Not Drunk as our intro and outro music. Find them at thejoydrops.com. You can find us at sidecharacterquest.com, at SCQ Podcast on Twitter, or by email at sidecharacterquest at gmail.com. The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content. Greetings, Scavengers Network listener. Do not adjust your podcast adjusting apparatus, this message is meant for consumer data. Something adjective is coming to the network very timestamp needed. On February 17th, 2022, get ready to join. Host names unresolved. As they take you through the subject unresolved. In the network's newest podcast. Project title unresolved. End transmission. Peace out cool dudes. Uh, there'll be like a little music playing and then bloopers. That's the thing people don't really realize about podcasts is you got to keep them warm. Mm -hmm. If you're cold, they're cold.